Welcome to Better Worlds, a podcast exploring geek culture across mediums. I'm Trevor. I'm Matthew. And I'm Dustin. This episode is the first half of our discussion about Marvel's newest movie, The Black Panther. If you haven't seen the movie yet, keep listening. There's a few items of follow-up, and then we talk about the movie without spoilers for a little bit. There's a clear spoiler warning at 37 minutes to let you know it's time to stop listening. If you have seen the movie, uh, then there's going to be a lot for you after that and also in the following episode. Enjoy. So this is not follow-up from anything that we discussed on the show, but was is follow-up of a Slack conversation. Um, it was a little bit on the show. Was it really? Well, oh. we okay, we talked about animals in Assassin's Creed Origins. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was briefly mentioned that I really hate crocodiles. And so this got brought up in Slack. Why does Trevor hate crocodiles so much? Trevor, would you like to share your order of eviltude? Yes. I rank crocodile evilness based on the narrowness of the jaw, because clearly the jaw is the source of the evil. So narrower jaw equals more focused evil. So, Alligators, although still quite evil, are the least evil of the crocodilians, followed by crocodiles, and then, is it caimans next, and then gharials? Yes. Yeah. So, I think that that ranking is garbage. Um, <laughs> so, you list gharials as the most evil of all the crocodilians. For sure. And also, aren't caimans' snouts wider than a crocodile's? I don't Crocodiles are just larger. I think so. Okay. We'll let that one go. Uh, but anyway, if, you, if anyone has seen a gharial, they know that gharials are the goofy cousin of any like serious threatening crocodilian. Their jaws are so narrow that if they tried to bite you, they would just break in half like twigs. I think the the only thing they're good for is catching fish. And so gharials are by far the least evil of the crocodilians. But every time I'm at the zoo in the herpetorium and I see the gharial, I think that is the last guy that I want to meet in a dark alley. I would rather meet that than a crocodile. I could break its mouth. <laughs> Just step on it, snap like a twig. I think you ranking gharials as not evil isn't sensitive to fish. Because I said they were the least evil. Yeah, but fish think they're the most evil because they're the most deadly to fish because of those. Other crocodile other crocodilians eat fish. Yeah, but gharials are specifically their snouts are adapted. You're cor- 100% correct that their snouts are adapted for catching fish the most effectively. Okay. You're all forgetting the most important part, which is that they look super creepy. They look super dumb. <laughs> they look like, um, uh, what is a really dumb looking, another dumb looking animal? I don't know. Some kind of, I don't that know. That big uh, blob frog that is oh, like yeah. purple. I can't, I mean, that's the first thing that came to mind. I don't it's like the blobfish it. of crocodilians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know. Next would be. The next least evil crocodilian would be a caiman because they're just tiny. They're like 
baby alligators or crocodiles. Which means they can hide more easily. But the, it also Good means luck knowing that thing's under your car. To humans. Yeah, but so if it's I hiding under I, your car, it's going to snap your legs off anyway, and it's going to happen. Here you is know it. my order of evilness. It's based entirely on the danger toward humans, I guess. So, I would definitely rank crocodiles as the most evil, alligators as second, and then Cayman and Gariel is just like not even a threat. Unless you are a human fish. <laughs> oh no, not the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, <laughs> the biggest caimans grow to be 16 feet in length and can weigh up to 2,400 pounds. That's called a crocodile. It's a, <laughs> it is a caiman called the Black Cayman. The Black Cayman is actually a crocodile. I. It's a it, scientifically known fact. So, I would okay. argue with that, except that the scientific name does have the root for crocodile in it, so I'm confused now too. <laughs> it's because it's a crocodilian. Um, okay, Dustin, I will grant. I believe it is true that the crocodile is the most openly aggressive, but I remain convinced that the Gariel and the Cayman have probably quite a bit of cloak and dagger stuff going on. Yeah, I just wanted to lay out my opinion, and I didn't think that I would convince you, but. I wanted to explain why I thought your ranking was garbage because I couldn't do it via text, at least not efficiently. I I say that it's the jaws and that's my way of explaining it because that happens to line up with the truth. And the truth is they're ranked in order of which ones give me the highest degree of heebie-jeebies. Alligators give you the least heebie-jeebies? You're the most likely to die from an alligator. Because I live in the United States. <laughs> right. Right. That's why I just said where you live. Based on where you live. Okay. Well, okay. But if you control for location. I have to think a saltwater crocodile would have be the dangerous. So most yeah. dangerous. But that's me. Yeah. I, that's why they're the, the most evil. Uh, dangerous and evil aren't, ne- aren't no, necessarily no, 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 no. the shh, same. Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> I was not making a comment on the evilness so much as the thing that could most easily kill me. Ah, yes, which is an indicator of the evilness. <laughs> I mean, have you seen Alien or Terminator? What does that have to do with it? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. They're effective killing machines and evil. Well, a liquid metal crocodile that can... <laughs> oh, man. Why did you have to put that image in my head? Can you imagine a T-1000 crocodile? It'd be a C-1000. <laughs> Well, I mean, a T-1000 could take the shape of a crocodile if it wanted to. Don't rain on my... The saltwater crocodile is an opportunistic, hyper-carnivorous apex predator. (laughs) Hyper-carnivorous, a.k.a. evil. What is a hyper-carnivore? Oh, its its diet is more than... evil. Its diet is more than 70% meat. Okay. (laughs) That's less... um, So, I mean, crocodiles are just under murder whales, as far as hyper carnivitude slash evil isn't murder will diet like a hundred percent meat that's why they're hyper carnivores as well okay and evil no they occasionally beach themselves to knock down redwoods and, <laughs> and they eat the redwoods <laughs> of course they would choose redwoods <laughs> the monsters <laughs> well that's all i have about crocodilian evil that sounds like you're giving up on the you are entitled to your opinion <laughs> 
And you also are entitled to your opinion. I'm simply telling you which one's creeping me out the most. Let's just agree that Bigfoot is by far the most dangerous. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway. Patent nonsense. (laughs) But we really don't want to get into cryptids because that would be an entire show. (laughs) So, Trevor, I have a listener question for you. Uh, This question comes from listener Janelle. Um, She would like to know what Luke and Leia's middle names are. Oh, hmm. What? He doesn't? Clearly, I know this off the top of my head, but uh, please excuse the clackety sound that's about to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, okay, so I'm Googling, well, DuckDuckGoing, Luke Skywalker's middle name right now. Um, (laughs) I honestly don't think he has a middle name. That's what I told her. Um, Leia in a sense, does not have a middle name. She does have multiple last names. Um, so she was Leia Organa and then Leia Organa Skywalker and then Leia Organa Skywalker solo. Um, I didn't realize she became Leia Organa Skywalker, so I will tell her that because that will satisfy one of her um, questions. Okay. <laughs> Can I ask a follow-up question to that? In that, is it convention in Star Wars universe for there to be middle names? I don't think it is, now that you mention it. I can't think of any middle names off the top of my head. Well, this was before bedtime, and I told her, I don't think they have middle names. And she said, of course they have middle names. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, do you want me to ask Trevor? (laughs) Trevor would know. If anyone knows, it would be Trevor. You could have used that as a teaching moment to talk about how naming conventions differ across cultures, and then the Star Wars universe is its own separate thing that only mirrors some of our naming conventions. I think you missed what I said. It was right before bedtime. (laughs) (laughs) I think that some of Leia's kids might have had middle names. Yeah, Obi-Wan had a... I mean... (laughs) That's a dash, so it's... it's... You know, I'm a big dummy... Apparently, Leia may never have actually gone by Skywalker. Uh-oh. I won't tell her that. Though she would be much more satisfied okay. if she did. I mean, well... Because I had to explain to her that how she was adopted and... Yeah. I mean, if you found out... Oh, oh, I know who has a middle name. Um, No, that's two last names as well. Okay, so Leia, Leia I don't think ever actually took Skywalker onto her name. Um, in the Legends material, she was Leia Organa solo. I think, um, looking at the Star Wars databank on their website, they have her listed as just Leia Organa. So it's possible that she actually never took the name solo at all as well. But I can tell you, um, Padme Nabari Amidala. Also, Kwai Gan Jin. But I think that Nabari is her actual family name, and Amidala is like a royal name that she took on when she was coronated. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Because, yeah, makes sense. So if you want to give her somebody who sort of has a middle name, Padme Nabari Amidala. So I can tell her about a movie that she's never seen. Great. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think she's seen part of it. Did you say never seen or never seeing? 
Oh, I said never seen. Okay. She will probably see it in the future. It's just, I haven't okay. shown it to her yet. I know some people are just like, I don't want my kids to know this exists. <laughs> no, she knows it, it exists. She's also familiar with BB-8 and Ray because how could she not be in today's marketing culture? Yeah, I mean, her friends have backpacks, right? <laughs> right. So it won't be a big deal to talk to her about that. What was her middle name? Narice? Nabari. Nabari. Okay. Dustin, I love how you substituted a Star Trek thing in there for a Star Wars answer. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you noticed. All right, and for this week's fin fact, um, I don't know why I was looking this up, but I found Oh my goodness. Okay, I just looked at the wiki. It says Padme Amadala Nabari. I swear it was Padme Nabari Amadala before, but it might have changed in canon now. Mm. Why do they keep changing stuff? I'm I'm going to insist that what I said first has been true for years and that this is a new thing. Well, you see, the situation is fluid. <laughs> okay. What were you saying about the uh, fin fact? If you must. Okay, so I'm not sure why I was looking this up. But I found today that there is a new version of the Nokia 3310 available to those of us on GMS. Is it GMS? GMA? GMS. CDMA. GMS server. Or not servers. Um, networks. Networks. Yeah, that's it. Thanks. Uh, so if like me you have some nostalgia for that old nokia phone that was the very first cell phone that you ever used you can purchase it if you are on at&t or t-mobile in the u.s also for uh matthew that cell phone that neo gets in the matrix oh i did see oh you saw that Mm -hmm. okay they're making that too for the listener um but it's not out yet what cell phone did he have it was a nokia 8110 so it was like curved but the bottom slid down to reveal the keys oh i have the uh, hold on let me put the links in the chat here here is the 8110 if you want to see these images, you can find them at betterworlds.net slash podcast slash 30. This was in the first Matrix movie? Yes. I mean, it didn't look like that. It was black. Not yellow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It's been a while since I've seen the Matrix. But he gets it in the in the mail. And that's how Morpheus tells him to avoid the agents in his office okay. building. Okay. Oh, right. So seeing that the 30, uh, 3310 is available makes me kind of wish that I was on AT&T. Hmm. That's all I have to say about that. Oh, actually, one other thing. It's not actually Nokia anymore. They license the name, but it's made by another Finnish company called hmd global Hmm. so still finish just not the original 
Finnish company. I like the the things they've chosen to highlight. Nokia 3310. The icon is back. <laughs> Boundless battery. You can play snake. <laughs> play snake. Those are the things they've chosen to highlight. <laughs> yeah. And- I, I think they're relying so heavily on nostalgia there that it's almost like hey if nintendo offered an original game boy i would buy that too there i have one you have wait hold on like you have an original game boy or you have a re uh, i have the original the gray brick yeah that i've had since i was six years old nice does it still work it does (laughs) jealous well it did last time i checked my mom has been using it with her class that she teaches Oh, geez. So it might it's not work wrecked. anymore. <laughs> totally wrecked. I still have a Game Boy Color, but it's not quite the same. Yeah. Yeah, I have the gray brick. The one that you have to flood, like, huge amounts of light to be able to see the screen at all. <laughs> I mean, you still yeah. have to do that with the Game Boy Color. Oh, okay. Like, it was only the very next thing that came out after the gray brick. Oh, okay. Even before the Game Boy Pocket? I'm not sure I remember where the Game Boy Pocket fits. In the pocket. I thought it went gray brick, Game Boy Pocket, and then the color was essentially a color version of the pocket. That could be. Well, someone can correct us if we're wrong. Oh, they will, I'm sure. We did not do our research. Okay. Uh, Let's see. I guess that brings us to Black Panther, doesn't it? I guess so. Would you look at that? So how do you So have you seen it? I have. (laughs) Me too. I as well. Matthew, how many times have you seen it? <laughs> I have only actually seen it once. Oh, that's surprising. I've been losing my ability to see movies multiple times really quickly together. Mm. Ooh, okay. What were you going to ask, Matthew? Um, I was going to say, I don't know. I was thinking, uh, how does everyone feel like the the movie's doing very well at the box office. It's, I think like the fifth biggest opening of all time and it's having a, I think I keep seeing stuff like it's basically only in terms of the day-to-day performance only falling like behind the force awakens and the minions. Um, (laughs) Do not speak their name here. (laughs) Sorry. It gives them power. power. (laughs) To speak their name is to ask them to appear. No. Um, but uh, so obviously, like it's I, most of the Marvel movies are doing fairly well when they're coming out, but this has exceeded those, and I think it actually opening weekend wise outpaced um, the uh, the second Avengers: Age of Ultron, and the only one it didn't outpace was the Avengers, the first Avengers, which definitely had a kind of like cultural moment to it at that point. So I think it would be safe to say it's having something of a cultural moment would that be fair what exactly do you mean by a cultural moment something that i guess exceeds just like the movie came out and people are going to a movie it's something that represents a i don't know something that's kind of just bigger than the movie itself like with the avengers it was a movie but it kind of represented this shared experience of like all these movies leading up to one movie which was kind of a a movies that were a little connected but somewhat separate like it was kind of a and it was the first i guess attempt to do that was there a big 
team. I guess there have been like maybe X-Men movies before, but those didn't have kind of the same build in. They just like started doing them. So I don't know. I felt like it had like people were really excited for it and it had a it was almost like a validation of being a fan of all of those movies because it built up together and then it kind of had that. But I mean, this is the Black Panther would be kind of different from that. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Sorry, Matthew, what were you, you said that it was important, like the Avengers. And you kind of give the example of how Avengers was important as a team up. Did you say anything about why this one is important? Or were you waiting for one of us to say it? Um, No, I was kind of just using that as I was using that in terms of the success it had at the box office indicates more than just like it was a movie that a lot of people saw. It kind of like took its own like it became bigger than just being a movie. Okay, I think it to some degree goes without saying at this point, but the movie is clearly important in terms of representation for black Mm -hmm. people, Uh, both the characters and the actors, but also um, African-American director and a lot of other people involved in making it. Um, It is not the first black superhero movie. Of course, it's not the first movie to feature black people, but something about this movie in particular has made it particularly significant. Um, And I know that some people I have talked with, I know that some white people have been kind of wondering why that matters. Um, And I, I started reading a book this week called Afrofuturism. It kind of explains this phenomenon of science fiction or futuristic fiction featuring black people and, in the first chapter, the author talks about how she remembers on Halloween going as Princess Leia. And she loved going as Princess Leia, but she knew she knew she had to be the girl. And so she couldn't have a lightsaber because she wasn't Luke. Um, and she was carrying a wooden sword instead. I'm not exactly sure how in the mind of a child a wooden sword <laughs> makes sense for Leia. But... Um, there's clearly still something there in the mind of a child that just kind of draws the lines between what they can and can't do based on the characters that they see portrayed. Um, And she also talks in that first chapter about how she always, even though she loved star Wars, she always had this nagging sense that it would have been pretty cool if Lando had not lost the millennium Falcon in a bet because then he would have been, the main character instead of Han. Um, So that would have been a better movie. (laughs) Perhaps. Um, I do like Lando a lot. I think he's a big part of why I rank Empire Strikes Back second. Anyway, um, that's kind of a tangent. Um, Anyway, it is, it's really important for people and especially for kids to see people who are like them in a movie and making a movie. And so I I don't think the significance of that can be dismissed by people who are used to seeing themselves in characters all the time. Like, I guess I feel like I hear people almost like annoyed that that's significant, but 
It's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's significant for a reason. It's because yeah. this hasn't happened. Like, we are working against decades of overrepresentation of one cultural group. Right. In film and television. Yeah. And the people that we see on screen don't accurately ref- reflect the world or our our nation for that matter the demographics that we have we see white males predominantly that's excluding half of the human race being females and then ignoring the fact that our cult- our country is culturally diverse and the world is culturally diverse so this actually reminds me of a uh a thing that I saw Joss Whedon quoting someone else who I just looked up and is, I guess, he was quoting Juno Diaz, J-U-N-O-8-N-O-T. I'm not sure if I'm saying Juno. That would, that's how I would read it, but I could be wrong. Could be Anyway, Joss, the, the quote was, if you want to make a human being into a monster, deny them at the cultural level any reflections of themselves. And that seems somewhat appropriate to the conversation. Cute just reminded me of another Joss Whedon quote. What wasn't um, they? That was Joss Whedon quoting someone else. But, well, uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> the one that I'm thinking of is not Joss Whedon quoting somebody else. It's him answering a question. He was asked, why do you keep making stories about strong female characters? And his answer was, because you're still asking me that question. So I think that kind of sums it up. It's like, if you're if you're annoyed that that's significant, then okay, let's have a thousand other movies like that until it doesn't seem significant anymore. Right. Exactly. Deal with it. <laughs> and that was the point I was trying to get to is it's significant because we are finally making a change and yeah. correcting some of the transgressions that we've had in the past. Yes. And so this is the first awkward steps toward a better future. Yes. Although I do want to say it never awkward being I, I'm imagining like a child starting to walk it, like it's slow and unsteady at first, but we're going to get better at it and it's going to become natural. And that's a good thing. <laughs> and see, I didn't feel like it was too bad in like an awkward sense or anything like there. There's definitely times when I've seen movies where it's very clear. They're like, we have african-american characters because we're trying to be diverse and they're almost like heavy-handed with it and it felt Mm. like what they were trying what they did with black panther was very uh, like they weren't shoving anyone into a role they felt like everything fit in the place that like it i don't know it felt natural if that makes sense and i don't think that dustin meant that the movie was like taking its first step i think he meant i think the first stumbling step thing was more about our ability as a culture to produce and fund and support stuff like this yes the movie itself is great but like as a society we're kind of taking our first steps yeah that's doing that um what was the other thing um on on the note of what matthew said i i have heard some people wondering like um what if the movie actually isn't that great? Then like, are people going to call me a racist just because I didn't like the movie? Um, and we, we totally saw that kind of thing happening with the force awakens and 
The Last Jedi, I definitely heard, like, I remember reading an article that said, if you don't like The Last Jedi and think it's the best thing ever, then you are racist and sexist and there's no excuse. And that's that. Um, I think that's kind of silly and there's plenty of room for different people to like different movies. Um, maybe even for different reasons. <laughs> uh, but in this case, I do think the movie itself is quite good. If somebody doesn't like it, you know, there could be plenty of reasons they don't like it. Um, so they might not like superhero movies. Yeah. They might just yeah. not like superhero <laughs> movies. Maybe they don't like apex predators or people dressed as apex predators. I don't know. Um, there's plenty of reasons for people to not like the same movies. And I don't really want to throw away. I don't really want to throw around accusations like that. Right. But I would also say if you're worried about the movie being overhyped because of its cultural significance, I would challenge the notion of expecting twice as much from the movie simply because of what it is. Um, try not to measure it against your sense that it's overhyped. Um, and as I was thinking about this, preparing to talk about it, I remembered in Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, he talks about how black parents will often tell their kids, you have to be twice as good um, yeah. to not. And he's talking about the problem of police violence and not giving cops a reason to shoot you. But he repeats this phrase a lot throughout the book about black parents telling their kids, you have to be twice as good. I would say, don't require that the movie be twice as good in order to like it the normal amount. Um, mm -hmm. So it, you know, it kind of goes both ways. Um, there is a lot of hype. There's a lot of cultural significance. And then there's the analysis of the movie itself simply as a movie. Um, it can be tough to tease all of that stuff out, but it can definitely be culturally significant and a really great movie at the same time. And I think that we all liked it. Am I correct in that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't, yeah, I don't, it's become increasingly hard for me to do rank, the ranking of MCU and where things fall exactly. Yeah. So I don't know that I could give you a, this was in this, I don't know. And in general, I think I've just kind of, uh, do you know how over time models of, where of like how electrons and atoms worked changed from being like there are electrons here to then saying like well we can't really know where they are and like there's just a probability <laughs> cloud that it's in here and then yeah. these ones are here and <laughs> yeah i gave up on ranking the marvel movies a while back to be honest it um, kind of feels like i just know what orbital the movies are in yeah and it's in this higher orbital or this lower orbital <laughs> or it's for a while I had them broken into tiers. So I had like three tiers of where I ranked them, but even that has gotten tough. Um, and now um, there's also the factor of like, which ones are actually the most important ones? Like from the perspective, not simply of how much do I enjoy this movie, but like, like you said, the Avengers is incredibly important as a, a team movie and as the culmination of several movies leading up to it, black Panther has this other cultural significance because of who and what it's representing. And then um, Iron Man is important as the first one. So you could argue that those three are the most important. Um, but does that mean those three are the three best? Like, I mean, 
there's just so many different criteria to judge by. Well, and you could even then you could do different analyses like Iron Man three and Captain America three, like Captain America three is so much more important than whatever Iron Man three ends up being, which <laughs> in terms of how like not a, you, without even arguing about like how good the movies were, just how important they are to the overarching narrative. You could anyway, there's just tons of ways you could dissect it. You're right, it's increasingly difficult. Have you guys ever even considered which Marvel movies have the best soundtracks? Um, I have been thinking about it as I'm going back through and watching more of the movies. Okay. The only one that I noticed the soundtrack was Guardians of the Galaxy volumes one and two. Okay. Yeah. Um, Oh, you mean, I was thinking like you meant original score kind of thing. Yeah. I did mean the original score, but Dustin has kind of a point as well. Um, Right. But I'm saying like what I was getting at, I was just going to say. You're saying you've never really thought about the original scores. Right. The original yeah. scores in every other movie don't seem to really stand out. Right. And that was what was unique about Guardians is it did stand out. So I wanted to mention before we got too deep into talking about the world or the characters that this is the first original score that I've really even noticed. Like the other scores are not bad. Um but most of them aren't particularly memorable outside of the movie and they, they serve the movie just fine, but there's not really a lot of standout material. The Avengers theme is good. Um, but I honestly don't remember any of the other themes. Oh, see, I, which again, it's not to say they're bad. I just don't even really remember them. The, I would agree with the Avengers and I remember Iron Man very strongly, but that made probably a bigger impression on me than I would guess either of you because i had been waiting for it for several years yeah and saw it many times um so the the black panther soundtrack stood out not just because it's unique in terms of instrumentation and stuff but i just thought it was really well done um there's a lot of themes that come back throughout the movie um the use of traditional forms i think is really well done and i i found a video i'll throw in the show notes of the composer talking about this and the composer was like swiss i think so he's this like widest guy you've ever seen but he went to africa and met with and worked with a lot of traditional african musicians in the process of making this and learned a lot about the the traditions and the forms and the different instruments and stuff and so it made me appreciate even more learning how it was made but Hmm. even just watching the movie um i remember watching the movie the first time the drums came in really heavy i thought i wonder if this is going to be just like super on the nose but by the end of the movie i was totally sold on the soundtrack yeah it does also have i mean we're talking about the split between score and um other music it does also have an accompanying album much like um guardians of the galaxy did except in this case it's all original stuff that was made for the movie it's produced by Kendrick Lamar and uh, I don't generally listen to hip hop or rap. So I'm not really the one to judge this. I do really like the first few and like the first few and last few tracks, the middle kind of drags for me. It might actually be quite good and I just don't have the ear for it, but um, yeah. I think it's appropriate that you um, analyzed the music (laughs) 
I get, I'm going to, I don't have, this probably goes back to your original point. I don't recall the soundtrack at all. Like, okay. Period. <laughs> um, I'm not disagreeing that it's probably good, but I think generally all the music's just well done, but it's like, I don't know. I was processing other things. So I will try to keep the next time I see it, we'll try to keep that as a metric to, um, listen for. Okay. Um, can I give you a couple things to listen for? Sure. The Royal theme. There's, there's a drum thing that is meant to sound like T'Challa's name. So it's like T'Challa, 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 T'Challa kind of hmm. a rhythm. Um, and it has in like the more majestic moments it has horns that come in to give it a even more regal sound. And it's like a ba 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 I'm humming it totally wrong, but there's like a trumpet kind of thing that I really like. Hmm. There's also a theme that comes back through several of the more poignant moments. Like anytime there's like a, something that could be kind of sad, just kind of listen for it, like sad or touching, just listen to the same theme through those. And the one, like the one moment that really made me happy for some reason was the music that plays. Um, are we in spoiler town? <laughs> now we are. Okay. We just entered city limit. Okay. City limits. Yes. We are going to go into spoilers now. If you haven't seen the movie, stop listening. Um, the one moment that the music really made me happy for some reason was when Nakia and Shuri run out into the battle and there's like maybe like marimba music or something. I mean, I don't know what the instrument actually is, but it's kind of a marimba sound and it's just like this really joyful sound as they run out to join the battle. The track on the original soundtrack is called Glory to Bast. Hmm. I like that for reference. Um, something that does remind me of something that I don't, I don't know if it's actually a thing in the comics or not. So Bast, and that's actually a thing in the comics. That's like Bast, real goddess that they built into the lore. And to my knowledge, I don't think there are any large populations that still worship Bast. So no, Bast was an Egyptian god, right? Yeah. Like a cat god. Yeah, like Bast is the reason. I thought it was, Bat was a cat goddess. I could yeah, be wrong. Ba- yeah, Bast is the reason that you see like all those mummified cats in Egypt, right? Um, yeah, I think so. I could I yeah. could be wrong. I had no idea before seeing this movie that there was any connection with Black Panther and Bast. Oh, yeah. The Bast is the, well, yeah, they covered that where the <laughs> yeah. mystical side stuff comes from. Um, yeah, the panther goddess. But again, I don't think there's actually people, again, substantial populations that worship Bast today. I could be wrong on that, and feel free to fact check me. I think you're right. Um, but then the white gorilla, tri- the Jabari tribe, because they're the white gorilla tribe in the comics, I think, um, they made a mention about like, oh, praise Hanuman or something. And I was like, oh, they're, hmm, Hanuman definitely is very revered by large populations of people in India. So I was like, interesting that they went there. (laughs) I don't know. That felt like, and I don't know if that's, I don't think that's actually the thing in the comics. So I was confused as to why they did that, but I don't know. Hmm. That's more of a guy, just a 
non sequitur, I guess. Interesting. I do think they did a very good job of adapting. Uh, um, M'Baku in the comics is actually more widely known by his super villainous name, the Man Ape. And it's just, it would have been really bad if they had straight adapted that. So they did a very good job of fixing that character. Wait, so he's going to be a villain in the future? He wasn't a villain. Like, they changed him from being a straight-up antagonist. Okay. So, like, I think they've adapted the character is what I'm saying. I see. Okay. Well, okay, so my... It's not like Doctor Strange where his... He's also not literally wearing a gorilla skin and acting savage, which has yeah. a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. My understanding from skimming some wiki stuff was that it's not a tribe in the comics, but it's the white gorilla cult. Yeah. That That's is also like a layer of the problem. The longstanding enemy of the panther cult. And their god is uh, Gekri, is the white ape god. Okay, so that wasn't. I was like, it, so it's not Hanuman. I don't know. Yeah, so I don't know why they brought Hanuman in. Again, that just seems like a bad. Like you could, that could potentially be. A, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know how to dissect that. Yeah. Like I think they wanted to render it a little more realistic because when you go into far, like the eastern parts of Africa, you can get some overflow. I think there is some light overflow of like Indian religion so that might be what they were trying to get at but i'm i don't know just confuse me i think hanuman is more of a monkey too not of an ape hanuman is a monkey he's a monkey god he's like a i think at some points kind of like a good trickster and i think he isn't he in the mahabharata i don't know uh that's like the i could be wrong let me check i just want to see now if that's hanuman mahab uh, I need to know. Oh. If anyone is wondering what Matthew's talking about, this is right before um, Mbaku and T'Challa fight at the waterfall. When T'Challa accepts the challenge, Mbaku says, praise Hanuman. If anyone wonders what Matthew's talking about. <laughs> um, this time I actually know. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I'm not going to bother trying to. Oh, Wikipedia says his, the texts are Ramayana. Ram... Ramayana is what I was trying to think okay. of. And he, I think he does. I did see that he shows up in the Mahabharata, but interesting. I did not think about that connection at all until you mentioned it. Um, anyway, that's a complete tangent, so we don't have to do anything with that. But, um, something I did want to discuss that was more planned was that I think there it, it's kind of interesting when I was watching it that I was like, oh, there's a lot of the way the this played out, there's actually a lot of parallel between wonder woman and the black panther in that they and some of it could just be entirely superficial things but it's like they both have a society that's isolated closed off and is like all but hit either hidden its existence or functionally hidden its existence from the rest of the world the protagonists are the royalty of those um tribe or not tribe but those places they have mystical connections with the mythical characters in those societies um i don't know what was a there was some other connection i was thinking of but there was a 
I guess the storylines they undertake are different, but just the, when I was thinking about the baseline, I was like, oh, there's a weird number of parallels. And then I was trying to think of like, in that like Wonder Woman kind of had a cultural moment in saying like, oh, well, you can have a woman superhero movie that's good. And then like the Black Panther is having kind of a similar cultural moment for African-American audiences. It's like, what does it say that both of those have like, are coming from places where those respect like women and then um, people of African descent are like essentially isolated. And then the stories kind of talk about how though there's like journeys into a different world. And like, I don't know, there's like, I feel like there's some subtext there that is also the fact that them, they are deciding to re-engage with the rest of the world to save it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Wakanda is ending its isolation so that they can be a beacon of hope and save. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what his speech was saying at the, in the end credits, but, and Wonder Woman in the same way is fighting to save mankind um, or the world of men. So that's, that's interesting as well. Yeah. So they have similar, like, again, it's not a, it's nowhere near a 100% correlation or anything. I just think that the number of parallels is very, and I don't think that's intentional on the part of black paint, because that's just entirely both of those stories. That's just how they play out. But I was like, interesting that they have so much running between the two of them. Yeah. Um, This reminded me of something else kind of going back to an earlier point. Um, You mentioned that it is a significant cultural moment for African-Americans. And I wanted to point out it's actually significant for continental Africans as well. Um, There were several, several of the actors. Oh yeah. At least um, I'm not sure about the rest of the crew, but several of the actors were actually continental Africans. Um, And the movie has kind of shattered the expectations of how well a movie starring black people can do overseas. Hmm. Um, Cause I mean, one of the big concerns is always like um, if this movie has a black star, is it going to do well in China? Like I remember Finn was actually left off of posters for star Wars in China because they thought it would hurt the movie there. Um, the, but black Panther make- has actually done really well internationally. So I'm, I don't know maybe one of you does did wonder woman do well internationally it did much better here than it did okay i mean it did not do it made money abroad but it's uh i think like if you take let's say we are comparing it to like guardians of the galaxy last year wonder woman made more money here than it did abroad and then like guardians of the galaxy and this is usually the trend made more money abroad than it did here okay how did wonder woman do in themiscura I'm going to assume it was the only movie allowed to play and (laughs) therefore it dominated the box office. (laughs) I'm just imagining like Diana being the only one who sees it. And then at the end, she's just doing like the Shia LaBeouf sitting alone in the theater, clapping very loudly, staring at the screen. (laughs) I think you mean the Citizen Kane thing. Yeah. Well, that too, but (laughs) yeah. Um, A parallel that I, 
wanted to mention and that I appreciate it is, well, thinking back to talking about how this is, it's hyped and it's doing well in the box office. I think there's two reasons. One is that it's a good movie. Yeah. Two, that it's appealing to a broader audience than most superhero films. Um, And I think Wonder Woman did that as well in that it was, I mean, I remember hearing about theaters that uh, sold out to only women uh, for showings of Wonder Woman. And when I went to see Black Panther, looking around the theater, it was unlike other superhero films that I have seen recently where it's predominantly white males watching. It was much more diverse in the theater. Yeah, I saw that too. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. And it's, it's a way of expanding the influence of comics and the interest in comics to um, a broader audience. And so that is a good thing. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I heard, I heard one conversation leaving the theater. The first time that I saw it, it was clear that people didn't have any idea who Bucky was. Mm -hmm. And so I was, it sounded like they maybe hadn't seen many of the, certainly not all, I don't know, maybe they just didn't recognize him, but it sounded like they had not previously seen any movies involving Bucky. Mm -hmm. So after the post credits, they were like, who's that white wolf guy? Like, I got to know more about this guy. They were really excited about it and they wanted to see the other movies involving him to learn who he was. So man, they really would have liked civil war because that had both (laughs) Bucky and so it really does bring people in for the other movies as well. I think. And the people that I was sitting by, I overheard them after the movie or after the credits started to roll. I overheard them talking like, are we supposed to stay or something? And they were getting up to leave. And I said, they always have some kind of scene through the credits. So you might want to stay to see it. And they said, oh, okay, thanks. And so they obviously hadn't been, they're not regular Marvel Mm -hmm. moviegoers. That's strangely common, though, after Marvel movies for people to just leave. Yeah, I was ple- I see that every time for some reason. Really, I see, and I went to a like midnight showing for this, so it's the. I did not notice any. This was still. There wasn't really any much demographic change, and I would say the majority of people like sat and stayed because the people going to a midnight release know what they're in for. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I always see a surprising number of people leave. No, that still does. I'm not trying to yeah. debate that. I'm saying when I've been to ones that aren't midnight. I'm releases. just saying at the non-midnight yeah. showings. I think some people just I want to be done when they're like, okay, movie's over. I don't care. <laughs> some people are really concerned about um, getting to the car and not having traffic. Yeah. Yeah. I. It was interesting watching the credit scenes. I was kind of viewing it from the eyes of someone who's not familiar with Marvel movies. And from that perspective, 
I didn't feel like the the post credit uh, shots really mattered a whole lot. From my perspective, having seen the movies, I thought they were important. Um, but I'm trying to think of some others that maybe would have been more impressive or entertaining. Of the credit scenes? Yeah, I guess the post-credit scenes are generally more of like a teaser of things that will are to come in the comics. And so they lend themselves more to people who are already into the comic lore right. mm-hmm. and familiar with what's going to happen. So, well, like Ant-Man's was literally a scene from Civil War when uh, Falcon and Cap had found Bucky. And they were like, oh, what are we going to do? I need help. And Falcon was like, I know a guy. That was like, I think that was the one in Ant-Man, right? I think so. I don't remember. I mean, that was pretty, that felt significant at the time because you were like. Right. But I, it was just an, a new, I guess, exercise on my part, trying to see this from the eyes of someone that isn't already invested in Marvel movies. Ooh, can I so I, well, I felt kind of bad saying, hey, you should stay and watch this because I was like, mm, they probably didn't really get a whole lot out of that. Because then you were wondering if it was actually useful to them. Right. But yeah, the, they probably are like, well, well, that guy just made me sit. <laughs> but that made <laughs> these credits um, that made Shuri's comment at the end, like the whole thing about, oh, great. Now I have to fix another broken white boy. That scene at yeah. the end made that comment make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's funny by itself, and then at the end, you're like, oh, okay, she's already fixed. She's also, clearly helping this dude out. Okay, I didn't catch that connection, so thanks. But also, the people that I was sitting by left after the first one, oh. and I was like, no, I'm not going to make them stay. After the first one, I, I was just like, I don't think they really would get much out of these. So, yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 has four Really? Yeah. Yeah, they kind of keep oh, yeah. going. Yeah. Um, and they are perhaps the, the Guardians of the Galaxy post credit scenes are like the worst ones to me because I really don't care about Howard the Duck and I don't know anything about the original Guardians of the Galaxy team with Sylvester Stallone. I mean, they kind of adapted them anyway, but. Yeah. Um. I heard people say that they didn't think that the post credits on this one were as good. I appreciated them for a couple reasons. The one at the UN for me answered some very specific questions that I had been left with. Um, I was wondering what it was going to mean for the franchise going forward. I was wondering if he had learned anything from his interactions with Killmonger. And so I felt like that really answered those questions for me. Oh, see, I think on a meta level, and this can actually lead into another point I wanted to make. On a meta level, that was, if not the most important scene, one of the most important scenes, because it's a direct parallel to Iron Man. Yeah. It's a yeah. it's literally like almost the same thing in that he's coming out saying, I am the Black Panther. I am the king of Wakanda. It's this whole like revealing a secret identity. And it's... I felt like that was intentional because that's almost Marvel saying like going forward, we want black Panther to be the new iron man because we know iron man's going to be phasing out. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of almost a bull. And okay. See, one of the things I wanted to, I, 
Well, I had thought I had thought about what it meant for Wakanda's influence on the future of that world. I hadn't thought about what it meant for him personally. So that's a really good point. Um, And it ties in with what I was going to say was important about the second scene was not only did it make the meaning of Shuri's comment clear, which I thought had been clear even before that when she said, oh boy, another, or hooray, another white boy for us to fix, whatever her comment was. Um, I felt like I knew she was talking about Bucky already, but yeah, that did make it clear. But it also answered the question of why aren't we seeing Bucky in this movie? Um, Cause we knew that he was in Wakanda. Um, so it's like, okay, you're allowing us to see him and we see that he's, do we find that out in civil war? The post credit scene in yeah, Civil War. Yeah. Okay. It's um, been so long since I only saw Civil War once. And it's on Netflix. Uh, I, yeah. The final thing about this last scene ties in very much with the point Matthew made about the significance of T'Challa's last scene. And that it appeared to me that Shuri is helping Bucky overcome his Hydra programming which could have big implications for his character going forward in becoming perhaps one of the more significant, one of the kind of anchors of the cinematic universe. And see, I guess I, maybe I liked Shuri so much that I attributed more, um, more credit to her than you, than you did there. Cause I thought that it was just like, Oh, she already got him over the hydro programming and he's like readjusting to not having that period there. That's what I mean. Okay. I thought you were saying like he was in the process of doing it. And I was like, oh, I got the impression he was pretty much already cured at this point. But he was, you know, you're undoing decades of brain programming. So, yeah, I mean, he's rehabilitating yeah. from that. What I mean, yeah, learning how to live his life again. Um. Oh, but the, the point, so like posi- positioning T'Challa is kind of like a, the center of a new... Uh, so they've kind of even though the avengers are kind of the main thing they've kind of made captain america iron man and um thor as the big three and like in the way they would run avenger stuff in the comics they're sometimes they're referred to as the big three a lot and it feels like as they're moving out of those trilogies having all wrapped up and those characters being less center stage that the they all it, I've seen people say, and it kind of almost does feel that way, that they want the new big three to be Doctor Strange, Black Panther, and Captain Marvel. And there is actually a new Avengers comic coming out that backs up Marvel kind of doing that point because it has the original big three and then those other big three as like the new Avengers team. (laughs) So it kind of like, I don't know, it seems like that makes some sense. But then... I feel like the position, like just the paralleling with Iron Man shows that they really want T'Challa to be central to that and that they're not being, I don't know, that they're trying to actively guide the conception of the universe that way right now. And I was like, you know, I'm really okay with that. Because <laughs> I, I think that actually the, but even though they don't have um, Doctor Strange and Black Panther and Black Panther and uh, Captain Marvel have some relationship in the comics, but Doctor Strange kind of does his own things. But I could see them making those three work really well together in the movies, especially since they're all running their own solo franchises. Although I liked 
Doctor Strange. Like, I liked his movie. I honestly didn't like his cameo in Ragnarok. I thought it seemed fairly, like, it seemed like kind of a waste of time to me. It's like forced. Yeah, it was forced. They really wanted to have it. So they did. Um, and it barely served the story. Um, so <laughs> it's almost like they did it because they stuck that in as a post credits in Dr. Strange. Yeah. So, um, I was actually wondering, like, I thought Captain America was supposed to be in Wakanda yeah, I, during these events as well. I don't. So it's like, it was kind of weird not to see him, but I'm also so relieved that they didn't have the shining white savior run out in the middle of the battle. <laughs> I, um, well, I don't but even then, think. Yeah. I, and I'm also glad they didn't have a, a really forced cameo where it's like, Oh, T'Challa's going to like go down into the bunker and talk with Cap now just because he has to have his cameo. And I was actually glad they didn't end up doing it. I mean, I'm in the same boat that they didn't. But even though that was the question I had, like, isn't he in Wakanda? Aren't I got the impression that's where, like, all of the fugitive people from Civil War were hiding. Yeah. But then I don't know if that's true or not, because you really only see, for sure, Cap and Bucky there. Yeah. And they might have even gone there for a little bit and then gone their separate ways again. And Bucky would have been the only one who really needed to stay since he was rehabilitating. It did bug me a little that they made such a big deal about bringing Ross back when they clearly already brought at least two people back with Cap and Bucky there. Yeah. But maybe um, Okoye did not know about that. Yeah. Well, she's like the head of the secret. She has to have known. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. It seems a little different somehow. I mean, he's just some random CIA guy. Wakanda looks a little different in Civil War than it does in black panther um i i'm willing to give him a pass on being concerned about bringing him back because he is actually actively working for the u.s government well he's not he's not a fugitive yeah but you could also be worried about the poster child who's wearing a flag even if he's (laughs) temporarily sworn it off yeah captain puerto rico I mean, Captain Puerto Rico would be Captain America. Like, we're not... <laughs> That's part of the country, guys. You're just joking about his shield design, right? No, his... Uh, hold on. Oh, the, no, the outfit? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of the... Like, his original World War II shield. No. Oh, and then um, while we're mentioning kind of the big three, I also did think it's interesting that... And maybe this could be part of the reasoning why they would want to position um, T'Challa as like kind of a linchpin for the movies for the foreseeable future. He kind of brings characteristics of Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America all together in one person. Um, let's see. Leader of a hidden kingdom. Super rich. Noble. Is that what you're saying? Did I? Yeah, high tech. Okay, high tech st- or high tech suits. Yeah, access to invulnerable metal. <laughs> um, <laughs> like got the. He's alternatively suave and knows exactly what to do, and then boyishly awkward. And <laughs> um, I don't know. Like he, he feels like he can take 
components of what makes all three of those characters work and the way they've done him kind of like synthesizes a new uh, like not that he isn't his own person but the he's reflecting a lot of what you've seen in some of those characters already so i just think that's kind of interesting and again would be a i, I would be a way that like helps audiences not familiar with the character be like oh, okay i know i like this characteristic in this part i don't know i just thought that was yeah that you could look at that and say like okay he's kind of got all of those people like some characteristics of all those people i'm just repeating myself at this point i'm done one one question why wouldn't spider-man be one of the big three because he is obviously really well known um and he's young so he could be around for a while the big three matters more in um I, I'm talking about... Okay, I see what your point is. The term Big Three gets used in universe to describe those guys. Oh, so it's not that they're like the popular anchors of the franchise. It's that they're the real powerhouses. Yes, but they're because they had that, that's how they got ported into the movie universe and they were kind of the Big Three single franchise people that they were building the franchises around, I guess is what I was going for. If you were going just for straight up popularity, the big three would, <laughs> would probably be Wolverine, Spider-Man and the Hulk, which would just <laughs> never work. As a t- <laughs> Although they tried to do that in the eighties by making them three out of four of the fantastic four, because they're like fantastic four aren't popular enough. We're making, they took those three and ghost Rider. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, yeah, a team. And with, they thought that would be better than the regular fantastic four. A team with three sociopaths on it is going to go down <laughs> great. And I was like, and poor, poor Peter. <laughs> it's like, who do you talk to? Do you talk? <laughs> I feel like he would just be trying so hard to be friends with the rest of them. And they'd all be like, leave me alone. Yeah. I don't know how he that would just end up talking to himself. That's probably more evocative of how the kids in the eighties reading comics were than, <laughs> but <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, it's the, I see what you're saying. I was, I think that Marvel wants, like they're, they're not going to 100% commit to Spider-Man because they don't 100% own Spider-Man. Like they almost want to throw all their weight behind the people they completely have the rights to, even though they do have movie stuff, but it's more like Sony's still owning it to a degree. So I don't know. They're. I think Spider-Man's still in a little bit of a weird spot. Yeah. I feel like we've actually barely done spoilers yet, but I think that our next points are going to definitely be more spoilery. Yeah, because we're talking some... um, We've been just talking, I don't know, meta commentary. Um, Actually, I'm going to jump on what I wanted to say that's a little out of order. Something I liked because it did parallel so well some of the stuff I had seen in the comics were scenes from the ancestral plane, specifically the way that um, the Coates run had done like that, the that seemed almost like panel perfect in some regards of how well they did the ancestral plane stuff. Um, and I felt like that, that those scenes to a degree felt like they played out like poetry, which is why Coates can do it so well because he's got the poetic chops to pull it off. Um, and I don't know. I appreciated those scenes that with my only thing being that they didn't have, 
in the comics you often had all of the previous kings in their black panther garb which changes over time which they didn't go that way and i was like i understand why they didn't go that way they wanted it to be more earthy and connected than like well here's a bunch of guys in crazy costumes (laughs) but i appreciated the the way that they oh go ahead i was gonna say in the first time he went to the ancestral plane it was a bunch of black panthers right and one guy (laughs) his dad no i think that i think that was the nod right like to saying they were all black panthers instead of having a bunch of guys in silly costumes they showed them kind of like literally the spirits of the animals they embody or uh, avatars for i don't know whatever the it surprised me how much it reminded me of um gun in angel going upstairs that sounds so oh, cryptic. I... Yeah. <laughs> it, it, well, there's a character named Gunn in a TV show called Angel. And, and he goes up the stairs. There is a place called Upstairs. <laughs> is it called Upstairs? I think it, it is. Is it that sounds right. upside down? <laughs> um, I also like with the Ancestral Plane, how when Killmonger goes into it, how effectively they use that to do so much with characterization without saying anything it's it illustrates his poverty of spirit so profoundly like yeah so effectively well it does that and then it shows how like it makes eloquently his point about like the african diaspora around the world is like spiritually severed from the main community with which it feels like there should be some connection but like even when you're literally going into that spirit realm or whatever you would term it like when there should not be any sort of barrier there's still a barrier there and i thought that yeah. just eloquently <laughs> pointed out that divide there yeah he he's still the best he has is looking at the book yeah even there um, cuz you were almost thinking like oh, okay well he could go commune with like maybe talking to the other panthers would help something and it's like he can't like even that's denied him and it's Mm -hmm. sucks (laughs) yeah This has been episode 30 of Better Worlds. Episode 31 will cover the second half of this conversation about the Black Panther. If you want to see the show notes for this episode, go to betterworlds.net slash podcast slash 30, and you'll find all the links and images we talked about. You can find us on Twitter at betterworldsnet. And if you'd like to join our Slack group where we talk about this kind of stuff in between episodes, you can join at slack.betterworlds.net. If you want to help us out, you can support the show by leaving a review or even just a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. So I'm alone. And when we were talking about crocodiles earlier, I ended up looking up what the most, uh, well, the biggest crocodiles ever were. And they were indeed saltwater crocodiles. The number one, uh, candidate was actually apparently like 20 feet long
which is quite a long crocodile. There's a picture of like seven men posed over it, holding it down. Kind of terrifying. I don't know if evil would be the term. I doubt Trevor will leave this in. There's also a giant one they feed in the... What river is this? Trevor should probably know that. Um, oh, in the Adelaide River in Australia. The jaw on it looks literally about the size of a person. I don't know. I don't think I would want to be on the boat where they're feeding this monster. That one's only 18 and a half feet long. It is alive still, and apparently people... Oh, and it's a three-limbed crocodile. Interesting. Hmm. The more you know. That Adelaide River crocodile's name was Brutus. <laughs>